KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. For our end-of-year show, we're featuring some of our favorite book segments from 2022. Later in the hour, Bad Mexicans. That's what the revolutionaries of 1910 were called as they fought on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border against the robber barons and their political allies. UCLA historian Kelly Little Hernandez will tell that story and talk about her book on race, empire, and revolution in the borderlands. Also, we know a lot about the bad things J. Edgar Hoover did, but it turns out there's a lot we didn't know. Historian Beverly Gage will explain. Her new book is G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. But first, our Constitution is not good. It urgently needs to be reimagined if we want justice and equality for all. That's what Ellie Mistal says in his new book, Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. He's the nation's justice correspondent. He's a fellow at the Type Media Center and a frequent guest on MSNBC and CNN. He's a graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Law School, and he's also great on Twitter. Ellie Mistal, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me back. Well, let's talk today about the Fifth Amendment. As everybody knows, the Fifth Amendment says the government can't make you incriminate yourself. But there's a second part of the Fifth Amendment that's not so well known. It says the government can't take away your property unless, unless what? Unless they give you just compensation, right? And that, that is, that is the, that is the, that's the top of the pyramid question. Like that's where the fight is. The government has a clear, unquestionable right to take your property. It's called the right of eminent domain. Every sovereign nation has it. It probably goes back to, you know, I made, I think I make the joke in the book. It probably goes back to like, you know, the village caveman chief, like <laughs> taking the cave from this other guy because they needed the cave to store the food. Like you can go back probably to the beginning of human civilization to understand some version of the of the government's theory for eminent domain. So so my question is, what does this have to do with black people? <laughs> well, it does because well, we'll put it like this, John, that the government can take property is unquestionable. Who are the government going to take the property from? That's where we have some fun. Right. And it turns out that more often than not, the government is going to take property from people who are poor, from people who are politically unconnected, from people who are powerless. That's the property they're going to go get because in part of this just compensation rule, you can pay less for property from people who are poor, unconnected, not powerful, don't have a lot to begin with. You can get that property on the cheap for in a lot of situations. Also, because those people cannot organize to fight and defend themselves and defend their kind of property rights against you, against you, the government in court, as effectively as rich folks. Right. And so what we've seen throughout history is the government, the American government, constantly kind of going after the property of poor folks, minorities, and in fact, not justly compensating them um, for, for their land, but cheaply compensating them, shall we say, for their land. Well, the fights over eminent domain recently have been fought by libertarian forces on the right. For them, of course, government is the problem and private property is the solution. And liberals usually support the government in these fights because the government is supposed to be acting on behalf of the public. 
But who is this public? Yeah, so this is where I end up agreeing with Republicans a little bit, which oh, is no. super uncomfortable for me because <laughs> you said it exactly right. Yes, the general liberal position is that eminent domain is a good power for the government to have because when the government takes the property, it's going to do useful public things with the property, right? It's going to take the property so it can build a hospital or a library or a public space. It's going to take the economic uh, vitality of the property and preserve it as a historical site, for instance. Maybe it's going to take some, maybe you've got a lot of property, it's going to take a little bit of your land to put up windmills or solar panels. All of these useful things is what the government is what we think of as liberals of the government doing when it takes your property. In practice, in practice, what happens more often than not is that the government takes your property and then gives it to private investors on the cheap under some nebulous argument of economic development or redevelopment. So this power of eminent domain that should be used to build hospitals and wind farms is in fact used to build like baseball stadiums and basketball arenas, right? It's the government taking the property in, you know, let's say uh, in a, in a, in an urban environment, giving it to a rich white sports owner on the cheap so they can build a billion dollar palace for their toy sports team and not share the money, by the way, back with, back with the government, back with the state, back with the people whose property got took. And that, that's just one example. There, there are lots of, you know, the stadium example is the most obvious one, but there are lots of like allegedly public purpose things that the government will take property for that actually end up in the pockets of private investors. This all kind of crescendoed with the major Supreme Court case called Kilo versus City of New London. That's where uh, the, city, the state of Connecticut basically took an entire development zone and gave it to some economic developers for, for re revitalization or whatever. It was just a cash grab for these private investors and, and the people whose property was, ta was taken, they went to court, including one Suzette Kilo, who just had a house that she didn't want to give up in New London, Connecticut. And they lost five to four with Stephen Breyer writing the majority opinion, defending the government's use of eminent domain and all that kind of stuff. And Clarence Thomas writing the dissent, and this is like the one you could go through the annals of American history and not find many places where I agree with Clarence Thomas over Stephen Breyer. But this is this is the one. This is <laughs> okay. like I think Clarence Thomas had the better of that argument because what Thomas said was that public use cannot be whatever the government says it is that day. It's got to mean something more tangible than whatever the government thinks it is, because too often the government will say it's public use when what they really mean is they're going to get some money from private investors. And I agree with Thomas, kind of, ew, <laughs> and, uh, it's hard. I can see the pain on your face. <laughs> So your piece for the nation opens with a fascinating example. It's, it's not from the 1950s, it's from the 1850s. And the public purpose was a great one. The creation of the greatest of all American urban parks, Central Park in New York City. We are so happy that we have a Central Park in New York City. What does this have to do with black people? There was an entire village, an entire community of free land-owning, voting Black people who lived in what is now Central Park. It was called 
Seneca Village. Hundreds of black families lived there because back in the this you know back in the long ago in the before times in the long long ago, the white people who initially who who owned and I say that very loosely because we know that all of this land was taken from somebody else, but the white people who owned kind of at that point what was Upper Manhattan because remember most of Manhattan in the 1850s was located basically below 14th Street, um, really below Canal Street. So they owned this Manhattan estate that was basically the country, which was, it was literally farmland. And the, this white family decided that they would sell the farmland to undesirables, which included Black people and quite a few Irish people. And so an entire community sprung up basically on what is now the west side of Central Park, kind of above, uh, you know, above the 70s. Um, um, where like if Broadway went straight through the park, kind of west of where Broadway would be above the 70s, there was this whole village of Black people who owned property. Remember, in the 1850s, there was no there was no 15th Amendment. So there was no guarantee of suffrage for Black people. But New York State had a rule that if you were Black and you owned at least, I think it was $200 worth of property, you could vote. Seneca Village was one of the only places in New York where you where you could be a black person and own property because that was the only, one of the only places that white people would sell you property. So Seneca Village had a large percentage of the entire black voting power in New York City at the time. And they took it from them. They just they just took the land from them to make Central Park. So this is an example from the 1850s, but you say all of the tricks that would be deployed against black communities in the 20th century were used against the people of Seneca Village in the 1850s. Tell us about these tricks. Yeah, so what the first thing they do is they say that they, they basically say that the property is condemned, that it's that it's swampland or, 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 or whatever, that it's, um, that it's not economically productive property and it's dangerous property. They use this to kind of drive down the price that the government will eventually have to pay under the Fifth Amendment's just compensation um, laws. That also kind of creates public sentiment that this property is not valuable to the property owners, that it's much more valuable for whatever the public use they are, they are selling that week. I brought up in the book that the Central Park plan was not the only plan for a park in Manhattan. There was another plan where they would have taken Jones Wood. Jones Wood is a, is a place on the kind of Upper East Side, kind of in the 60s on the East Side on the water. It wasn't going to be as big as Central Park, but it was going to be this kind of big green space. Only a few families lived there, as opposed to the hundreds of families that lived in Seneca Village, but they were rich white families. They were the Joneses. They were wealthy white people, which means, like everybody else, they lived below 14th Street. But, you know, Joneswood was their country estate. The government went to take their property. The, the, the Joneses sued New York State, and they won. They won a lawsuit that prevented New York State from taking their property. So then New York State went and took, sorry, New York City then went and took um, the property of Black people, who also sued, but, oh, the Black people lost. And... Now we have Central Park. Do you have any suggestions about what the state could do now to pay the black owners of Seneca Village what their land was actually worth? One of the nice things about owning property is that we have, we have records of that, right? We know, we know who they were. We know their names. We can go find their descendants. 
And, you know, if you want to talk about just compensation, they were paid. Uh, I'm going to get the numbers wrong. And I wrote it down so I wouldn't have to remember them on the plot. But <laughs> so I'm not going to quote the number to you. Right. But, you know, they, they, they got a couple hundred dollars profit from, you know, when they bought the property to what the uh, 1857 authorities paid them um, for the property when they took it. But that property, you know, and you think about the 70s on Central Park West, that's pretty expensive land just at the moment. <laughs> and I bet that if we went and we found all the descendants and gave them what their property is really worth, that, that would go a long way to ameliorating the historical hurt and the historical uh, uh, tragedy of the government destroying their town. I don't, I don't think we're going to do that, but like that would be, oh, I believe the word would be, that would be a good way to repay, perhaps a reparation um, of, <laughs> of the harm that was caused. Excellent. So eminent domain, you say, is one example of how our constitution is what you gently uh, term an imperfect work that needs to be reimagined. What's your larger argument here about achieving justice and equality for all with the constitution we have? Right, so look, if we're gonna stick with this constitution, which there's gonna be a whole another argument about maybe we shouldn't, but if we're gonna stick with this constitution, then we need to interpret it in a way that, for, that, that puts at the forefront the issues of justice, fairness, and equality. The Constitution was written by slavers and colonists and people willing to make deals with slavers and, colon and, and, and colonists. It's not a great document. I mean, it's just, it's just straight up. It's not very, it literally has not been all that successful if you consider the fact that we had to get into a fighting hot war over it. Yes, less than 100 years after it was ratified. Like there, there are other ways to think about, you know, perfect documents and our Constitution would not meet that standard, right? So if we're gonna stick with it, at the very least, we must take the amendments that allegedly fixed it, the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th Amendments, and I would add the 19th Amendment, 13th Amendment outlawed slavery, the 14th Amendment call for equal protection, the 15th Amendment um, gave voting rights, universal suffrage to men, and the 19th Amendment eventually gave universal suffrage to women. Those four amendments together become the most important parts of the Constitution if we're going to live in a pluralistic society. And so my fix for it is that everything that we do has to be strained through a lens and pass under under the 13th, 14th, 15th, and 19th amendments. And if it doesn't, then it cannot be legitimate. And I would kind of start there as the baseline. I, you could call, I would call myself a 14th amendment ideologist. Right. Like that, that, that's a thing. Why can't that be a thing? I would make the, the 14th Amendment is is the thing that makes all of the other amendments legitimate. Equal protection of the laws. It's a must. You can't have a free society without equal protection of laws. You can't have a free society without universal suffrage. And if you're doing things in your society, Republicans in Georgia, that that, that take away from universal suffrage, or equal protection, then that society is not legitimate. And that shouldn't be a that really shouldn't be a controversial position. Ellie Mistal, he wrote about the use and abuse of eminent domain for The Nation magazine. You can read that online at thenation.com. His new book, Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution, is out now. Kirkus Reviews called it a reading of the Constitution that all social justice advocates should study. 
And Matt Levine of Bloomberg Opinion called it brisk and brutal, full of both laugh out loud lines and righteous fury. I agree. Thank you, Ellie. This was great. Thank you, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The Mexican Revolution of 1910. That's the one with the slogan, Tierra y Libertad, Land and Liberty. The one where Pancho Villa and Emiliano Zapata led the fight to overthrow Porfirio Diaz, who had invited investors from the United States to buy millions of acres of Mexican land and take control of Mexican railroads, oil, and mining. That revolution was sparked by a band of migrant rebels from the United States, the Magonistas, led by a brilliant radical named Ricardo Flores Magón. Now that story has been told by historian Kelly Little Hernandez. She holds the Thomas E. Lifka Endowed Chair in History at UCLA, where she is director of the Ralph J. Bunch Center for African American Studies. She's a leader in the fight against mass incarceration and author of the award-winning books Migra and City of Inmates. She's also the recipient of a MacArthur Genius Award. Her new book on race, empire, and revolution in the borderlands has the wonderful title, Bad Mexicans. Kelly Little Hernandez, welcome back. Thank you for having me on, John. Well, everyone knows something about Pancho Villa and Zapata. I didn't know anything about the Magonistas until I read your book. Who was Ricardo Flores Magón, and how did he become the target of a joint U.S.-Mexico counterinsurgency campaign in 1910? So Ricardo Flores Magón was a journalist in Mexico, and he was part of a small group of journalists at the turn of the 20th century who were challenging the dictatorship of Porfirio Diaz, and they largely were working out of Mexico City. And after Porfirio Diaz had attempted several times to suppress their their newspaper, Renacion, and put them in jail and in prison and smashed up their printing presses and actually issued a gag order prohibiting any newspaper in Mexico from publishing their words or articles. The gag orders issued in 1903. This group of journalists, dissident journalists, crossed the border into the United States, into Laredo, Texas in particular, to relaunch their newspaper, Regeneración, and hopefully organize a revolution against the dictator back in Mexico. And so what this book does, it tells the story of how they rebuilt their social movement on the U.S. side of the border and the efforts of the Mexican government and the United States government working together to suppress their social movement and to stop them from inciting a revolution. Now, why would the United States government get involved? Well, the United States government, um, through really significant U.S. investors, think about the Guggenheims and the Rockefellers, all the major names of the Robert Barron era, They had made major investments in Diaz's Mexico, as you had said, bought up millions of acres of land and come to dominate key industries from railroads to oil to mining. And they wanted to protect those investments. And Diaz had always been the one to protect those investments. So they wanted to protect Diaz. And so it's the United States government and the Mexican government working together to try to suppress a social movement led by journalists, but that's joined by ordinary people 
cotton pickers and miners, migrant workers, and whatnot. Well, let's talk about Mexicans in the United States in 1910. As historians, we remember the Mexican War of 1846 to 48 when the United States conquered a huge swath from Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, California, and a huge population of Mexicans were now inside the borders of the United States. So we're talking about 50 years after that when the Southwest has a large population of people who originally lived in Mexico. Certainly. So there's the population of, of Mexicans and indigenous persons and um, communities that were living on the land base that um, had been claimed by Mexico, but was seized by the United States after the U.S.-Mexico War. And then when you have the integration of the U.S. and Mexican economies that begins to happen really in the 1880s with the completion of a transcontinental railroad running north and south between the United States and, and central Mexico, um, then you also see the rise of mass labor migration from Mexico to the United States. And that's really happening at the turn of the 20th century. About you know, 100,000 Mexicans are migrating in the early years of the 20th century to come up to jobs in the United States. And they're coming because foreign investors and, and major Mexican elites are displacing indigenous and rural communities by buying up and privatizing land across Mexico. Those displaced um, workers, you know, they go to look for jobs in towns and haciendas and on the railroads. And by the early 20th century, they're beginning to migrate north into the United States in search of work. 1910, there's also a socialist movement in the United States concerned about a lot of the same issues of exploitation and democracy that the Magonistas are concerned about in Mexico. Tell us about socialism in the United States and the Magonistas' relationship with the Anglo-American and European socialists of the United States. When the Ricardo Flores Magón and his friends and journalists and the social movement begin to rebuild their community here in the United States, and that's happening between 1904 and 1910, they come into contact with some of the leading radical voices in the United States. Think Emma Goldman having conversations with Ricardo Flores Magón in St. Louis was a hotbed of labor organizing and socialist politics. They're certainly influencing one another's thoughts and minds. And, and so um, Anglo-American progressives and radicals, especially members of the Socialist Party, by the 1910 had become strong supporters of the Magonistas. And they do a couple of things in particular. They help the Magonistas reach a broader audience by publishing um, books and articles in English in major progressive newspapers about the conditions of life and labor in Mexico. That's really important because the mainstream progressive Anglo-American population at the time, the early 20th century, had a vision of Porfirio Diaz as being a great reformer. Right? He had brought stability to Mexico, and they didn't know much about the labor conditions in Mexico. And the Magonistas, through their partnerships with Anglo-American radicals, helped to change that narrative in the United States, which makes it more uncomfortable for the United States government to support the Diaz administration and try to suppress the Magonistas. So you say this group of Mexican radicals and revolutionaries that had created a new base in Laredo sparked what became revolution against Diaz in Mexico. How exactly did they do that? 
So they cross into Laredo, Texas in January of 1904. And their first goal is to relaunch their newspaper, Renoracion. But within days of arriving in Laredo, they notice that they're being followed everywhere. And they knew that that was Diaz's spies. So they move to San Antonio and then St. Louis, where they are able to relaunch their newspaper. They establish a political party, the PLM, the Partido Liberal Mexicano. And they also begin to establish cells or focos across the United States that are both subscribers to the newspaper or members of the PLM, but also they're beginning to gather arms to ready themselves for an armed assault in Mexico. And there's a labor strike at a a mine in northern Mexico, in Cananea, Sonora, Mexico, in June of 1906. And it's that labor strike which turns deadly against uh, the Mexican workers who are striking against an Anglo-American mine operator in Mexico that inspires the the PLM to call for an all-out armed revolution in Mexico within one year's time. So between 1906, it's really after that uprising and when they issue a manifesto, right, a program to the nation saying this armed uprising is not just about unseating Porfirio Diaz, but it's also about protecting labor rights for Mexican workers about returning land to indigenous and rural communities that have been displaced through the Diaz regime, about ending child labor, about ending debt servitude, about protecting democracy, about this social and economic revolution. And you say that the Magonistas not only changed the course of history in Mexico, they opened a new chapter in the history of policing in the United States. Tell us a little more about that. The PLM is able to... Um, launch four armed raids into Mexico, one in September of 1906 and three in June of 1908. And it's immediately following the raids of June of 1908, which are the most lethal and stunning and damaging for the Diaz administration, that the United States President Theodore Roosevelt, along with the U.S. Attorney General at the time, Charles Bonaparte, they establish a new police force to be able to enforce federal law. What's the name of this police force? Police force is the one and only, at that time, Bureau of Investigation, which goes on to become the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. So one of the really important parts about the Magonista story and how it relates to U.S. history is that the FBI, which goes on to become a counterinsurgency super force throughout the 20th and 21st centuries, um, really cuts its teeth. One of its very first big cases was chasing down members of the PLM and doing everything they could to suppress the outbreak of the 1910 Mexican Revolution. And then there's a huge and horrifying postscript to your story. El Plan de San Diego, an uprising in South Texas in 1915. You call it one of the largest and deadliest uprisings against white settler supremacy in U.S. history. I never heard about this. Tell us about it. Yeah, there's so much in this book um, that many people won't have heard much about. But I must say that there are many scholars who've been writing on these issues for quite some time, and I I lean on their work. And the goal of this book is to haul that knowledge out of the academy and to bring it to a broader public. So Plan de San Diego, as you said, is um, an uprising that happens in South Texas in the summer of 1915. And this is right in the middle of the Mexican Revolution. And a group of Mexican nationals and Mexican Americans get together and they concoct a plan that if they have already 
removed Diaz from power in Mexico and are on their way to gaining economic and a political revolution in Mexico, why should that not transcend borders as well? So they look north to Texas and to the United States. They form an army for all races and peoples. They recruit um, Black folks, Asian folks, and others to um, move across South Texas to assassinate any white male 16 or older and to seize land. And that the first lands seized by this army of liberation for the people would go to African-Americans as a sanctuary from white supremacy. And the next set of lands would go to indigenous peoples as a sanctuary from settler supremacy. Wow. And it's an incredible vision and then would go to Mexicans and Mexican-Americans, but they wanted to really unlock the land from white settler supremacy. And so they begin their uprising in the summer of 1915 in South Texas, ripping up railroad tracks, yes, committing assassinations and more. And the response is extraordinary of the vigilantes, the U.S. Marshals, Department of War begin to summarily lynch and kill an uncounted number of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans across the region. Historians and some folks have estimated that anywhere between 300 and perhaps as high as 5,000 Mexicans and Mexican-Americans were murdered in retaliation for Plan de San Diego. And so you have two things that happened in the summer of 1915 and, and heading into 1916. Is one, one of the most significant uprisings against white settler supremacy in U.S. history. This army of all non-white peoples coming together. And you also have one of the deadliest suppression campaigns of that kind of uprising in U.S. history. And here's the shocking thing. So almost nobody knows it happened. Um, this is a, a history, Latinx history general, in general, Mexican-American history in particular, um, that has not gotten enough coverage in the canon of the American story. And so this book about this relatively small group of Mexican migrants who had a particular dream of the early 20th century, my hope is that it's part of a broader program and campaign to kick open the doors of U.S. history, to see so many of the stories we hadn't seen before, to think about how they transform our understanding of who we are uh, as a people. And one last thing, your title, Bad Mexicans, where does that come from? Bad Mexicans is a term that the dictator and his regime in Mexico used to describe the dissidents, the rebels, the insurgents. And so he would call Ricardo Flores Magón and his the members of his social movement bad Mexicans. And they were bad Mexicans, malos mexicanos, for challenging his regime. Now, of course, right, I knew the moment I knew I was going to write this book was the moment that we had another autocrat here in the United States, President Donald Trump, who had declared Mexican migrants to be bad hombres. And I wanted to provide a history as to what he was stirring up when he was using that kind of rhetoric targeting Mexican migrants, that there had been another autocrat at another time who had declared Mexicans seeking a better life for themselves and their families as malos mexicanos. And so this is part of the shared story of um, the freedom dreams of Mexico's dispossessed and the attempts of various autocrats across time to suppress their, their social movements. Kelly Little Hernandez, 
Her new book on race, empire, and revolution in the borderlands during and after Mexico's 1910 revolution has the wonderful title, Bad Mexicans. Kelly, thanks for all your work, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The left has hated J. Edgar Hoover for a hundred years, ever since the Palmer raids of 1919, the attacks on radicals that began his career. Now there's a terrific new biography of Hoover that puts it all together from beginning to end with a lot of stunning new information. It's called G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. The author is Beverly Gage. She teaches history at Yale. She writes frequently for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the New Yorker. Beverly Gage, welcome to the program. It's great to be here, John. We know a lot about the bad things Hoover did, wiretapping Martin Luther King and then trying to blackmail him into committing suicide right before he was to receive the Nobel Peace Prize, and COINTELPRO, the secret campaign to disrupt the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, the black power movement. But your book reminds us that Hoover also did some things that were not bad. So let's be fair and remind us what's on your list. Well, it is true that the book tries to take a, a pretty balanced view of Hoover, which actually isn't that hard to do when you have someone who has been so villainized for so long. <laughs> Even acknowledging a handful of good things um, puts you uh, puts you somewhere in the uh, the revisionist camp. Um, but I would say that most of the quote unquote good things that Hoover did in his life came out of a tradition of kind of professional government service that he learned during the progressive era when he was a young man. He believed in the power of the state. He believed in the power of expertise. And so there are lots of moments where he is actually acting as almost a civil libertarian. He opposed Japanese mass incarceration and internment during the Second World War, which was not a popular view in, <laughs> in even the Roosevelt administration. There are some great moments in the book where he stands up to Richard Nixon, and Richard Nixon thinks that uh, Hoover has become some sort of civil libertarian. Um, and then there are just some moments where the FBI actually delivers on what it's supposed to deliver on, which is solving crimes and uh, enforcing the law. Yeah, for example, in 1964, uh, he helped prosecute the Klan killers of the Mississippi Freedom Summer Volunteers, Mickey Schwerner, James Goodman, and Andrew Cheney. So I want to talk for a minute more about Hoover and Nixon. One of the good things that he did was refuse Nixon's request to go after Daniel Ellsberg after the release of the Pentagon Papers. So what exactly did Nixon want? This is 1969, 1970, and why did Hoover refuse? 
Nixon wanted, it's the FBI didn't refuse altogether uh, to investigate. They were kind of looking into things, but Nixon wanted a much more aggressive campaign. And Hoover held back for a couple of reasons. One is that in 1969 and 70, Nixon and Henry Kissinger had already asked Hoover to uh, wiretap White House staffers, members of the press who were suspected of leaking. And Hoover went along with it. He did it, but he wasn't sure it was going to be a very very good idea. And he was really worried about what would happen if it came out, particularly the wiretapping of members of the press. So he's already cautious about those things. He often uh, said that he was friendly with Daniel Ellsberg's father-in-law as well. So there was a personal side to this story. And Hoover was just growing a little bit more cautious in his old age. And I think a little bit more aware of just how combustible and controversial it would be in the end. And rightly so, you know, he says, we got to really hold back. They're going to make Ellsberg into a martyr. And uh, Nixon, of course, didn't didn't listen to him. <laughs> so what did Nixon do when Hoover refused to go after Ellsberg the way Nixon wanted him to? Yeah, it's one of the moments where Nixon says, OK, if the FBI isn't going to do exactly what I want, I'm going to have my own team. Um, and this is one of the origins of the plumbers and the plumbers themselves, who were sort of Nixon's dirty trick squad. Um, they had members of the FBI, former agents and others who had been trained by Hoover, uh, but who were now willing to do Nixon's bidding a little bit more directly. And that plumbers thing, as I recall, didn't work out that well for Nixon. Yeah, you know, he, he might have seen that this uh, if he had listened to Edgar, maybe it would have all been different. It's actually funny when you when you listen to the Nixon tapes. Um, Watergate happens right after Hoover's death, uh, and a, a few years in, you you hear Nixon saying, "If my old friend Edgar were still around, you know, it wouldn't all be collapsing around me like this." But before Hoover dies, just a year before he died, came the event that damaged him more than anything else in his lifetime, the break-in at the FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania, March 1971. Remind us what happened there. This is really a fantastic story, and it's been told tremendously well in a book by Betty Medsker called The Burglary, as well as a terrific documentary film called 1971 by Johanna Hamilton. Um, and it's an incredible story, first of all, because it's just a small band of activists in the Philadelphia area um, who, in 1971, decide that they want to expose what the FBI has do been doing to the new left. Um, and so they break in to a very small regional office in Media, Pennsylvania, which actually happens to be right next to my hometown. So I felt a kind of good hometown connection to this story. Um, and they go in and they steal all of Hoover's files, all of the files that are in there. Um, and this really becomes the moment that uh, we get some documentation of what almost everyone in the new left understood was happening, which was uh, FBI infiltration, surveillance um, of a wide range of activists. But the really great part of the story is that the FBI fails to catch them. And uh, so they they actually really got away with it and uh, came out and revealed themselves uh, about 10 years ago. Um, turns out a bunch of uh, good anti-war activists from the from the Philadelphia area. Later that year, after the media FBI burglary, the fall of 1971, Nixon decided it was time for Hoover to go. You say Nixon's advisors suggested various inducements he could offer Hoover. For example, 
they do a lot of very funny brainstorming about it. Um, like maybe we can bump him up to the Supreme Court. Yeah, that's maybe the one that can... really that's the one that really got to me. Are <laughs> exactly. you kidding? But the beautiful thing about that story is that Nixon actually brings Hoover in, tries to have this conversation, tries to make the case that the moment has come to step down. And uh, Hoover more or less refuses. He says, well, you know, Dick, if you insist and you order me to step down, you're the president. Obviously, I would have to do it, but I don't want to do it. And Nixon says, oh, OK, well, if you don't want to do it, nobody's <laughs> nobody's insisting on this. And why? Why didn't Nixon fire him when he decided? it was time for Hoover to go. This is one of the great questions of Hoover's career, and it's not just Nixon, right? Hoover was director of the FBI for 48 years. So he started under Calvin Coolidge, um, and he lasts under eight presidents, four of them Democrats, four of them Republicans. And so that's one of the big questions. How did he do it? And I think there are a combination of factors. So one that we wouldn't tend to think about today is the fact that even very very late in life, uh, Hoover was pretty popular. And for most of his career, he was incredibly popular. He was one of the most popular, best respected public servants in America, certainly in the 1940s and 1950s. Um, by the time we get to the Nixon years, I think Nixon sees a couple of things going on. One is that he really based a lot of his 1968 campaign and that a lot of his domestic politics around a kind of Hoover-esque law and order message. And so he's been celebrating Hoover um, and he's nervous that law and order conservatives are going to be upset with him if he forces Hoover out. Hoover knows a lot of things about the Nixon administration as well from the secret wiretaps that he had planted uh, for them. And, uh, you know, there are great quotes um, from kind of the end of the first Nixon term in which Nixon says that he fears, you know, if they really try to ease Hoover out, that Hoover is this man who's going to bring down the temple around him, that he knows everything and uh, it's just too, too dangerous. So Hoover died in office, May, 1972. What did Nixon say when he heard the news? Nixon said that old c uh, <laughs> and he, uh, you know, it's an interesting moment because Nixon, I think, is very relieved when Hoover dies because it solves a problem that he's been trying to solve for a while, or at least he thinks it will solve his problem. Uh, but there also seems to be some real grief there. I mean, this is someone who had been in his life for 25 years. They had socialized together. They had been political allies. That phrase, that old c you could take it to be an expression of admiration, which you do in the book. But... You could also take it as a reference to Hoover's homosexuality. So we need to talk about Hoover's relationship with Clyde Tolson. That relationship was not a secret, right? What did people know about Hoover and Tolson during his lifetime? This was the key relationship of Hoover's life, and Clyde Tolson was his second in command at the FBI for most of his career, really from the 1930s onward. Tolson became an agent in 1928. 
Um, and it is a funny combination of a very open and very public relationship and then a very inaccessible and in some ways quite secretive relationship. The open part of it is that they worked very closely together at the FBI for four decades. Um, and so their private and public lives were really fused. Neither one of them married. And they were obviously each other's primary social partner. So uh, they traveled together, they double dated together, they went to nightclubs together, and the racetrack together. And everyone in Washington, in New York, in LA, the places they hung out, knew to treat them as a couple. And they were a very widely accepted social couple. Now, whether you could then describe them as a gay couple, it's a slightly different question. So certainly they pushed back against that. Your evidence on uh, this relationship includes Hoover's private vacation photos. These are remarkable documents and we salute you for publishing these in the book. Tell us about them and what you make of them. Yeah, Hoover left behind these amazing photo albums, and they are his personal photo albums. And certainly in the 30s and 40s, especially, a lot of what's there are very, very intimate photos of his vacations with Tolson. Um, the ones that I published are my favorites, but <laughs> there are dozens and dozens of these that you could choose from. And a lot of them are really very intimate shots uh, in bath robes, in uh, bathing suits, out on the beach, kind of private moments of gazing at each other, them with their arms thrown around each other uh, in a sort of friendly way, more than a romantic way necessarily. But uh, what really struck me about those is, on the one hand, just their, their, their genuine intimacy, which you can really see and feel in them, and then the sheer number of them. What did Bobby Kennedy call Hoover and Tolson? Bobby Kennedy was not super nice to them or big fans of them, and he used to refer to them as Jay Edna and Clyde. <laughs> Man. I also was amazed to see that starting in 1962, the Mattachine Society, the first gay organization, started inviting him to their events. That was a great file to come across. So the, the local Mattachine Society in Washington, D.C. is clearly having some fun with the FBI. You know, and at a moment when it required actually a lot of bravery and confidence uh, to do that, but they start putting Hoover on their mailing list, inviting him to such events as, you know, the Homosexual in America, a lecture for uh, those who might want to be informed. And Hoover gets very worked up about this. He gets them called into the FBI and they say, well, we'll take you off our list if you'll take us off of yours. <laughs> great, great story. So now back to the beginning, young J. Edgar Hoover went to college at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. and joined a fraternity called Kappa Alpha. This is one of my favorite parts of your book. Tell us about Kappa Alpha. Kappa Alpha is really a fascinating institution and one that I didn't know much about when I started writing about Hoover. The National Kappa Alpha had been formed in 1865, uh, key year, end of the Civil War, to honor the memory and the lost cause of Robert E. Lee. And so throughout the late 19th and into the earliest 20th century, they're a really key institution uh, for 
white Southern men, uh, particularly very prominent white Southern political men, and two of the biggest figures in the fraternity at the moment that Hoover joined were John Temple Graves, who was uh, a segregationist, pro-lynching Southern editor, very famous figure, a great champion of the Atlanta race riot, and not in the ways one might want. Uh, and the other was Thomas Dixon, who was the author of The Klansman, which is the film that became The Birth of a Nation. And they're really the two standard bearers of the fraternity on a cultural level. And then you've got all these Southern Democrats who were actively engaged in uh, creating segregation in the early 20th century. They're all kind of in the alumni chapters around D.C. And I think this is a lot of where Hoover gets both his racial um, and to some degree his political education is, is in his fraternity. And Kappa Alpha, I learned from Google, is still going strong. They have chapters at 122 schools. We record our program in Los Angeles, and there's a chapter of Kappa Alpha at USC. And it was in the news just the last year. It was one of six fraternities that refused to accept the university's new rules on preventing sexual assault at frat parties. Kappa Alpha, still going strong. Well, we have to talk about Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Their execution in 1953 for stealing the secret of the atom bomb and giving it to the Russians was one of Hoover's highest profile projects. But now we know that the FBI basically went after the wrong guy. The Russians did get American atomic secrets, but not from Julius and Ethel. They got them from real nuclear scientists. First of all, Klaus Fuchs, who was caught by the Brits, and then from a brilliant young American physicist named Ted Hall. Ted Hall was identified in the Venona decrypts that the FBI had as a key Soviet spy at Los Alamos. The FBI investigated Ted Hall for spying, but they never arrested him, and he went on to live a long and happy life as a scientist. There's a book about uh, his life. It's called Bombshell, The Secret Story of America's Unknown Atomic Spy Conspiracy by Joseph Albright and Marcia Kunstel. Uh, and at the same time we learned about Ted Hall, we also learned that David Greenglass, who was the FBI's key witness against the Rosenbergs, the brother of Ethel, admitted that he had lied about her in the trial, that she had not typed the documents Julius gave to the Soviets. And so his lies sent her to the electric chair. That story was told in an interview by Sam Roberts at the New York Times in 1996. And he later wrote a book about it called The Brother. That book had one unforgettable sentence. William P. Rogers, who was deputy attorney general at the time of the execution and later secretary of state under Nixon, admitted to Sam Roberts of the New York Times that the government's objective was never to kill the Rosenbergs, but to get them to confess and he said of Ethel, quote, she called our bluff. She called our bluff. So Julius was a spy, but he didn't give the secret of the A-bomb to the Russians. Ethel was framed by the FBI and her brother. The real spy was never prosecuted. My question for you is, why did Hoover decide to go after the Rosenbergs instead of Ted Hall? Well, the Venona Project is a really interesting and somewhat complicated story. So on the one hand, uh, these are decrypts that the army gets during the war. 
Um, they begin after the war to collaborate with the FBI in trying to sort out what is in these Soviet communications. Um, and they find that a lot of them have to do with, uh, with intelligence and espionage. And so beginning in the late 40s, they work together. Um, Venona leads them, in fact, to a, a pretty substantial number of people, including Julius Rosenberg. Um, it leads them to far more people, as you suggest, than they're actually a able to prosecute. Um, and that's partly because their number one goal with Venona is to keep its existence secret. So they're able to go after Julius Rosenberg because they have a witness who is willing to testify, right? So because you have David and then Ruth Greenglass, uh, you're able to actually do something in court. And during the entire Rosenberg case, the existence of Venona is not known, though people uh, people do have a sense that there's something that the FBI knows that they're holding back. And in fact, they're right about that. But on the other hand, because you want to keep this secret, if you can't find a witness and you can't find material evidence, you can know to a great degree of certainty that someone like Ted Hall has been engaged in atomic espionage. But, you know, if you're prioritizing secrecy, uh, you're not going to go after him. And that was the decision that the, the FBI, the Justice Department and the Army made together. You know, when they went after the Rosenbergs, as you say, the hope really was that the Rosenbergs would then flip and talk about other people and they would kind of keep following this chain down the line um, and be able to uh, to go further. But the Rosenbergs do, in some sense, really, really stop it. And while Hoover was failing to get Julius and Ethel to cooperate, he was giving those most top secret counter espionage documents, the Venona decrypts, to the top British intelligence official in the United States, Kim Philby, who was soon shown to be a Soviet spy. How devastating was that for Hoover? It was pretty bad. That wasn't a great moment, right? So Kim Philby is this kind of illustrious a British counterintelligence person who gets sent over to be the, the liaison to the FBI and the CIA uh, in the very late 1940s, but of course turns out to have been a Soviet spy the entire time he's working for the British. So that was pretty devastating to uh, to American intelligence, the FBI and the, and the CIA both. And what did the CIA conclude about this whole episode with giving the Venona secrets to uh, Kim Philby? Yeah, one CIA official says something pretty devastating, which is that uh, the FBI and the CIA would have been better off doing nothing about Soviet espionage in the 40s and 50s, rather than uh, engaging in what they did and handing it all over, in essence, to Kim Philby and the Soviets. So um, you've said how popular J. Edgar Hoover was at the peak of his career, you have this uh, startling uh, opinion poll in 1964, after uh, Hoover denounced Martin Luther King as America's most notorious liar. How did that go over with the public? This is a really famous moment. It's still a point of reference today, uh, the moment that Hoover really publicly goes after King and calls him the most notorious liar. Uh, and today, of course, we think evil J. Edgar Hoover, nobody would support that, you know, kind of sainted Martin Luther King. But at the time, 
that is not at all how the politics played out. So in a, in a poll conducted in that moment, full 50% of Americans say that they support Hoover, 16% say they're on King's side, and then a whole bunch of people say uh, they don't really know which side to be on. And what's interesting to me about that poll is that it suggests you know, that some of our more comforting national narratives uh, should be rethought a little bit, because that's actually what the politics of the 60s looked like. So you conclude your story of J. Edgar Hoover, that this is a story about America in the 20th century, what we tolerated and what we refused to see. Right. Part of the goal in this book is not just to have it be about this very, very interesting uh, and long-lived and influential man named J. Edgar Hoover, but really to tell a story about the growth of American government, particularly of the security state over the course of the 20th century, and to tell a story about Washington and national politics itself. Um, and I think that Hoover conceived of himself as being a person who really policed the limits of American democracy and decided what was going to be legitimate speech and what was going to be illegitimate speech. And he did a lot of that in secret. And so I think today, there's something really to be contended with about the idea, first of all, that Hoover was as popular as he was. We tend to think, oh, he was a rogue actor and therefore had people only known what he was up to, surely they would have rejected it. But he was pretty open about a lot of what he was doing and in fact had very deep and widespread support. And I think that tells us something different about our story of the 20th century than we might like to think. Uh, and then the piece that was secret, which was, uh, some of the details of his secret apparatus um, also ought to lead us to, you know, think really seriously about the kind of security state that was built um, out of the pressures of the 20th century, the ways in which it has contained political possibility and political speech over the course of the 20th century. Um, and we should think about how much of that we want in our own lives today. The book is G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. In The New Yorker, Margaret Talbot called it crisply written, prodigiously researched, and frequently astonishing. The author is Beverly Gage. Bev, thanks for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks, John. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Music